Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. As some of you heard, the state of Hawaii released my official long-form birth certificate. Hopefully... This puts all doubts to rest. But just in case there are any lingering questions, tonight I'm prepared to go a step further. Tonight, for the first time, I am releasing my official birth video. I want to make clear to the Fox News table, that was a joke. Hello, and welcome to The Last Laugh. My name's Matt Wilstein, and I'm a senior writer at The Daily Beast. On today's show, someone I have interviewed many times over the past few years. I think I can even call him a friend at this point. Crooked Media co-founder and former speechwriter for President Obama, John Lovett. John is hesitant to call himself a comedian, but he did spend several years writing jokes for Obama's White House Correspondents' Dinner speeches and performs what has been sounding more and more like stand-up on his weekly live podcast, Love It or Leave It. We taped this episode at Crooked Media headquarters in L.A., the very same studio where Pod Save America tapes twice a week, and went pretty deep on the state of political comedy as we approached the first comedy-free White House Correspondents' Dinner in 16 years. I hope you enjoy this much more political than usual edition of The Last Laugh with the very funny and very opinionated John Lovett. So yeah, I feel like your, you know, your legions of fans would love to know what a what a uh, typical day is like for you here at, at Crooked Media. So what's uh what's happening today? Well, today, you know, there was it's a mix of things. We Every day is a little bit different because, you know, Monday there's a Pod Save America, Tuesday Tommy records Pod Save the World, on Thursday there's another Pod Save America, and Love It or Leave It is usually Thursday night. Um, You know, it's a mix of things. We have shows that we're always working on and thinking about, plus this is now a a growing company with 30-some-odd people, so there's other shows in development, questions about what else we should be doing. So it's an interesting mix between being a host and then also being part of a company and learning how to do that uh, on the fly. And how many Diet Cokes is this for you today? You know, I am cutting back. So this is probably (laughs) number three. What time is it now? Uh, 2.30? 2.30-ish, yeah. But I start with a a triple espresso in the morning. Oh, so that's something too. It's a lot, and I'm trying to cut back, but I'm not succeeding Hmm. is the problem. So we are uh, we're coming up on the the first White House Correspondents Dinner without a comedian since 2003, when Ray Charles was the guest in the at the at the dinner just after the invasion of Iraq. Wow! So that's something to think about right there. <laughs> uh, so I mean, what, what what do you think about that decision that that we you know heard uh, several months ago now from the uh, White House Correspondents Association to forgo a comedian this year? You know, there are people that have a unnuanced negative view of the White House Correspondents' Dinner, that it is a moment in which elite journalists pay tribute to themselves by getting too cozy with the people they're meant to cover, that it is a symptom of cultural and political rot, that uh, it, it takes what should be an adversarial relationship and pulls back the curtain to reveal people that... Um, care more about access than they do about doing good journalism. That would be, I think, a a version of the critique. And I I think that there is some truth to that. But I also think that the dinner does have some value. And when when there was a president who wasn't the worst person uh, (laughs) America has produced in half a century in the job, it had value both for the president but also for the press in that it is a moment to remember that it's an earnest thing to say but that we are all americans and that we do celebrate the free press and that as much as the relationship between the white house and the white house press corps can be adversarial 
um, and as much as they can bother each other, ultimately there is there is respect and mutual regard born of a shared set of principles about what we care about and what we do and what we're supposed to care about in a democracy is open and free flow of information and powerful people understanding that it is the role of journalists to hold them accountable. And it is an opportunity to poke fun at the silliness and self-seriousness of the press corps and to afford the president a chance to point out some of the things that have been bugging him about the press. And that lets out some air, and I think that can be a good thing. I don't think it's a bad thing. Now, that being said, I do think it becomes a vulgar and ugly display when you are looking past monumental and evil sins on the part of the president. I think that is true when George W. Bush is joking about weapons of mass destruction mm -hmm. and the Iraq war. I think that is true when you have someone like Donald Trump who is making a mockery of the office, destroying institutions, pursuing racist, uh, supremacist, anti-immigrant, anti-Muslim policies, um, lying on a daily basis, attacking the press corps on a daily basis. So before Donald Trump said he wasn't going to this thing anymore, I thought that it was hard to under, hard to imagine having the dinner like they always had it because how can you sit there and laugh with these people? Yeah. These are, it's, you know, before we even got to Donald Trump pulling out, I was like, how can you have a comedian to tell jokes? So in a lot of ways, and I've said this before, I think I said this to you before, yeah. that this is like a zombie dinner. Uh, this is a zombie White House correspondence dinner uh, during a, for a zombie institution to protect zombie norms during a zombie <laughs> presidency. Yeah, I mean, and the the thing that kind of precipitated this decision to not ha even have a now there wasn't a president. Now there's not going to be a comedian either. Right. Um, was last year with Michelle Wolf when she made some jokes um, about uh, Sarah Huckabee Sanders and Kellyanne Conway, which I think those got less attention. Um, and the reaction, I guess, was to say, okay. We're not even going to have comedy at this thing anymore. And it seems like it may be a, a plea from the WHCA to say we're going to have this historian in a way to almost court Trump back to the to the dinner. Did you see it that way or, or did you think that's what, what they are up to? I mean, what, what, why do you think they made that decision? I don't know. I don't know, and I, I don't <laughs> like I don't envy the position of the White House Correspondents Association. I don't envy the position of the White House Correspondents Association during this period of time. Yeah. But as a rule, anything you do to try to accede to Trump in order to make him feel comfortable is probably a mistake. I respect the desire to just have the dinner because I respect that you're not going to just stop doing something uh, that is part of your mission that you think has value simply because the politician in the White House disagrees with you. That would seem to run counter to the mission itself. Mm -hmm. But, you know, you have to you run into this. Look, what is the point of this thing? I mean, yeah. what is the point of having a comedian? Right. I mean, what yeah. is the point of any of this? And especially with with the White House, I, are, I actually don't know the answer to this. You know, last year, Trump didn't go, but Sanders went. Some other officials. Up, she went. sat up there on the on, you know, where the president usually sits on the dais. Yeah. Are White House officials planning to go this year? I don't know the answer to that either, and I think that I, I've heard that that Trump is not planning to go, and he likes to kind of hold a rally and and make fun of it from from afar. That seems to be what he's been doing the last couple of years. Um, but the fact that there's not a comedian makes me think that there's a there's more of a chance that he would show up because he seems so averse to being in the room when somebody is making fun of him. I mean, we've seen that, you know, sure. over and over again. I wonder. I, it seems you know who can predict. I don't think that the comedian, not comedian distinction is very important to them. Mm. They like bashing the press. It's an opportunity to say, all these press reporters, all these yeah. reporters are gathered, but I'm here with you. And there's it seems like yeah, there's and, plenty for them not to like without the comedian there. And by the way, <laughs> something that has been a fantasy option for Democratic and Republican presidents for a long time, this idea that you just say, I'm not going to that dinner. I'm going to the people. Yeah. Right. Like, why not make a moment of it? You know, it's almost it's a uh, I don't I don't know how many presidents have gotten close to doing it, but it, it is something that you feel like was an option that people would consider like don't go to that fancy dinner go do a rally and say you're not going make a moment of it make a a um anti-elite anti-washington moment of it but uh they seemed uh this they they finally did it and i think partly it is because he wants to bash the press partly it is because he has thin skin oh and one other thing by the way one other piece of this is one of the other i think 
reasons you have it and also reasons to question why it exists is it was also bipartisan. It was mm-hmm. something where you had Democrats in the audience and Republicans in the audience, and they would laugh and poke fun at each other, and maybe some jokes would go too far, maybe they wouldn't. But now, how can you, how can you justify saying that these people belong in a room together when we have one of our two parties that has so um, abandoned principle to get behind the president? So, you know, the White House Correspondents' Dinner, maybe we're in this period where you got to just shake the Etch-A-Sketch, and mm-hmm. that's what this is. These years will be a moment to shake the Etch-A-Sketch because by the time you got to the end of the Obama years, the thing had become so sensationalized. There were so many parties. There were so many celebrities. The The true kind of purpose of the dinner had been so far removed from what was actually happening anyway. So honestly, who gives a shit? <laughs> and I'm never really sure what to call Sarah Huckabee Sanders. You know, is it Sarah Sanders? Is it Sarah Huckabee Sanders? Is it Cousin Huckabee? Is it Auntie Huckabee Sanders? Like, what's Uncle Tom but for white women who disappoint other white women? Oh, I know, Aunt Coulter. I actually really like Sarah. I think she's very resourceful. Like, she burns facts, and then she uses that ash to create a perfect smoky eye. Like, maybe she's born with it. Maybe it's lies. It's probably lies. <laughs> uh, as someone, you, you know, you went to a lot of these things. As you said, you wrote jokes for, for Obama. When you saw the everything that happened with Michelle Wolf and, you know, Mercedes Schlapp storming out of the room and sure, tweeting sure. about it and all that. She wanted of, to get to the party faster. Yeah. Uh, did you think... Wait, were these jokes any harsher than any other jokes that anyone else had made? Did you think that they were they were crossing some line? Uh, no. And I think Michelle Wolf is incredibly funny. I think she's incredibly talented. I think she gave these people uh, the hard-edged humor um, that doesn't come close to the level of vitriol misinformation and hatred that they have directed at not just powerful opponents, but powerless people. Um, you know, there was some suggestion that, that she was talking about people's appearances. I think that that was very debatable. Um, and I would argue in general, not about Michelle Wolf that, and again, really this is not about Michelle Wolf that as a rule, I think it is valuable to go really hard at these people. And it is also valuable to keep it on the substance because they deserve it. And it prevents them from making, um, deeply bad faith attacks against you when these are people that apologize for, work for, help every single day. One of the most vicious, mean-spirited people who attacks appearance and women and their bodies on a near constant basis. So my view of it is, uh, I don't. I think that they were going to try to find something to say Michelle Wolf did was wrong no matter they, they were going to find something that Michelle Wolf did wrong no matter what she did. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think what she did was probably close to the line. That's where she, that's where she was supposed to be. And by the way, when you're a comedian and your goal is to try to get close to the line and really push these people, um, if, if there's a chance you may step over it, who gives a shit? So what? It's a joke. <laughs> but they don't. Ca- but and they don't care either. They're so hurt. Give me a fucking break. These are people that work for Donald Trump, who helped Donald Trump every single day, who mocks people, and who is not joking, who is not trying to get people to laugh, who isn't doing it to make light, who isn't doing it to hold the powerful accountable, who's doing it to hurt people's feelings and make people feel small and turn his supporters uh, against them and keep his supporters from feeling compassion for some of the least among us. You know, recently Donald Trump. Uh, made fun of asylum seekers. Hmm. Now you can tell me, now you can tell me that you are hurt by Michelle Wolf making a joke about, I don't even remember, eyeshadow? <laughs> but yeah. you th- you're, you're so hurt you have to leave a party and get to the after party faster because it just made you feel so sad? And yet Donald Trump trying to get his supporters to not care about asylum seekers escaping poverty and crime with the, and, and, and threats to their lives with the clothes on their back? making fun of them to saying that they're fakers, that that doesn't bother you. It's bullshit. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, Trump's, uh, Trump's feelings about comedy are, are well known. He tweets about SNL, uh, including, uh, recently, I think his, his SNL rage culminated in a tweet about a rerun from Christmas that he, I think somehow either watched or heard about and then, and then complained about again, (laughs) Um, yeah. and threatened NBC and he's going to take away licenses. I mean, what do you think that's about? Do you think like, what is, ha- <laughs> what do I think it's about? Yeah. 
I think he thought it was a new episode. <laughs> I mean, he did say like they're con they're doing this over and over again. Yeah. Do you remember that clip of Donald Rumsfeld during the Bush administration saying, "You're not seeing ten vases; you're seeing one vase ten times." They're just replaying the clip. Mm. Donald Trump did not know that they were replaying the clip. It was a rerun, and as a rule, Saturday Night Live reruns should not have this much power in our <laughs> politics. He heard, saw a rerun on television. It got him all spun up, and he spent a week talking about John McCain. We spent a week talking about John McCain as a result. He has threatened NBC and their license before. You know, the thing with Donald Trump is he issues, you know, it's, it's, um, it's you know, fascism for the cameras. So, uh, you know, he says he's going to shut the border down. He says he's going to go after their licenses. He says he's going to uh, get the po post office to go after the Washington Post. He says this. He says that. And usually he's just saying it. Mm -hmm. But once in a while he means it. Once in a while, he shuts down the, the southern border for a few hours. Once yeah. in a while, he actually follows through with one of these idle threats, or eventually he does. You know, he he uh, so it's you have to take him quite seriously while at the same time recognizing that he wasn't thinking, he wasn't planning, he wasn't imagining the policy. He was spouting off because he's an angry old man who's slowing down and um, can't believe that after his entire life of seeking the respect of people in Manhattan, after his whole life, his whole life of trying to get these people to like him, though unwilling to do the work and show the discipline required to get it, he is the president of the United States, and he still doesn't have people's respect. And I think deep down, deep down, he knows he doesn't deserve it, and that's who he's mad at. Yeah. He's mad at Donald Trump. Yeah. Every time he, he makes fun of, or every time he goes after SNL, I think about how he hosted SNL, you know, less than four years ago uh, during the primary. And I think that's a decision that, that, that show and, and Lorne Michaels and everyone is still living down in a lot of ways. And I'm not sure they've really acknowledged what a mistake that was. I mean, do you, what did you think of that at the time? And, and do you think that they deserve criticism for, for giving him that type of platform? Absolutely. Of course they do. Of course they do. Shame on them. Shame on them. Uh, you know, he came down that escalator and he said, Mexicans are rapists. He came down that escalator and he began one of the most uh, despicable campaigns uh, in modern American history. It wasn't a joke. It wasn't funny then. Um, and uh, it is a sign of, it is a an example of what we allow when you talk about the right people or the wrong people versus what we allow uh, when you don't. I mean, look, if Donald Trump said the same kinds of things about gay people that he said about Mexicans, he said the same kind of thing about about Jews, as he said, about Muslims, there would be no chance that he could host Saturday Night Live. Of course not. Of course yeah. not. And I think it was a mistake. I understand why they made it. And by the way, it was a moment when we were grappling with something, which is, what do you do when America, one of its two political parties, embraces someone who is um, morally unacceptable? That when, when the two pillars of our political system, the two poles of the debate that are meant to be equal and opposite, duking it out in a marketplace of ideas, right? What do, what do you do when one of those parties embraces something reprehensible to the point where it doesn't deserve to be treated um, like uh, doesn't deserve to be treated like an ordinary political movement, doesn't deserve to be treated with the same respect you would afford a Democrat, right? What do you do? I don't know the answer. You definitely don't let them host Saturday Night Live. And I think <laughs> one of the things you see is uh, frustration on the part of liberals on Twitter is how can it's this idea of normalizing. Remember that we were talking about yeah. normalizing for, for two years? Yeah. Hey, you know why we stopped talking about it? Because it became normal. Yeah. But uh, it was this feeling of, wait a second, what's more important, right? Treating Republicans or Democrats as equal or reflecting the fact that they're not, right? What's more important? And, and um, I think that they uh, I think they really fucked up. Yeah, I mean, they. I think they thought that. Oh well, he's never going to be president. This is just a fad, and it's it's funny now. And um, and you know, it's like how Huffington Post put him in the entertainment section, right? And, and those I think kinds every of things. And and so you know, look, I think it was a mistake. Obviously, it's a mistake in hindsight. I I think I'm probably over torquing how obvious it was as a mistake. Yeah. At the time, um, though, I think it speaks to the fact that I think if you had a if you had a more diverse group of people making the decision, it wouldn't have been made mm -hmm. that way. Yeah. Um, but. Yeah, I remember Huffington Post putting them in the entertainment section. We didn't know what to do. Yeah. We didn't know what to do. We couldn't believe it was real. Mm -hmm. um, couldn't believe all si It was um, somebody, I think Nate Silver made this point that as human beings, we naturally, when it comes to probabilities, we can understand the numbers in some abstract sense. But in a gut way, there's really only two probabilities, 50-50 or one in a million. Like when that coin goes up, it's 50-50. 
when you you know if it was one and three it's, you'd still have mm-hmm. that same feeling right mm-hmm. like i could i could i could win i could lose you know it's yeah you your, your body can't manifest so many subtleties in terms of probabilities and so we sorted donald trump into the one in a million category when he belonged in the 50 50 category and i think that was a collective mistake yeah uh, the irony about how much he hates SNL is that I think they've actually really struggled to figure out how to make comedy about him. And, you know, there was this idea that, oh, Trump's going to be so easy to make comedy about and, you know, everything's a, everything he does is an easy target. But, I mean, from to my mind, the it's so crazy and over the top that it becomes really hard to elevate. So what you end up doing is just kind of they just kind of restage whatever just happened. Um, what, what's your take on that? I mean, I don't know how much of these, this stuff you watch, whether it's SNL or he also, you know, complains about Colbert and, uh, Kimmel and these people. So a lot of people for him to complain about the, uh, I think it's a challenge for everybody. I, you know, I see some things I, you know, I I don't Mm -hmm. know. I'm I'm not watching that much of it. Um, in part because I spend all day reading about it. It's not like it's my free time. Yeah. And you don't need to see it recreated. Uh, (laughs) I just deleted Twitter from my phone so that Twitter was only for work. I'm in, I'm in the process of trying to narrow the window politics has uh, because I think politics has sucked up so much of our lives. But um, it is hard to make fun of Donald Trump because he is a parody of himself. And that always makes it tricky to find an access point. I also think it is hard to differentiate yourself because it's a little bit like aiming at the ground. You know, people are, there's, I think there's a lot of people out there that are just, there's a lot of easy jokes you can make about Trump. Mm -hmm. And some of them are even pretty funny. But it's harder to find the deeper stuff, um, especially because we've been at this for two years. I mean, this is a problem not just for comedy. This is a problem for political coverage. What do you do when um, the, there has been <laughs> – what do you do when the problem is obvious and has been stated again and again for two years? How many times can you have the same conversation? Donald Trump is unfit to be president. The Republican Party shouldn't have capitulated to him. But out of cravenness and zeal and – ideological um, commitment and hatred of liberals. Uh, They gave in to this person, if not embraced him, and it has made our politics toxic. It has drawn all of us into it, and um, it sucks. (laughs) It's, uh, you know, we just have this conversation again and again. Oh, I can't believe, I can't believe they're going to confirm I don't know. Pick the villain of the week. I can't believe they're going to confirm Stephen Moore. I can't believe they're going to convert, com- confirm Brett Kavanaugh. I can't believe uh, they're not going to overturn Donald Trump's emergency declaration. I can't believe it. Of course you can believe it. It's been the same story. It's been the same story since summer of 2016. The Republican Party was never Paul Ryan's. It was Donald Trump's. And uh, the only person who <laughs> Donald Trump figured that out first. And the rest of us have been catching up. Coming up after the break... John Lovett shares his complicated feelings about the allegations against Al Franken and Joe Biden. It does feel like if there's anything that's going to draw attention away from the Trump show, it's the 2020 Democrats, um, who some of whom have been able to to draw attention away from him yeah. in, in a media sense. Um, you you guys have been interviewing them on Pod Save America. I know you've had you've had some on on Love It or Leave It. Uh, is there anyone, as you, as this, as people have been announcing, that anyone ha- that's really surprised you, or that you've thought, you know, oh, I didn't really think I would, um, I would be responding to their message or their whole um, approach as much as I, as much as you thought you would. You know, I'll tell, I'll say one thing. I am a sucker for an announcement <laughs> video. I see an announcement video, and I think that's it. I'm in. For about 15 minutes, there's a halo effect for me in every single announcement video. You show me Cory Booker's announcement video, I am pumped. You show me Kamala's video, I am pumped. Show me Warren's video, I'm pumped. So, uh, I'm for every. I love every slogan for 15 minutes. I'm in. Um, I think it's in part because a lot of these candidates have a great case to make. Now, surprise, I I am fascinated by the little moment. But but I'm fascinated by the moment Pete Buttigieg is currently having. Um, I, I would say, honestly, the, the thing that to me has been just personally the most inspiring uh, has been Elizabeth Warren's policy proposals. I just have been obviously I, I you know, obviously, I think she has been an intellectual leader, certainly on economic issues. But I think in a larger way, 
um, for Democrats for a long time. I think she was ahead of the curve uh, in a lot of ways. And I think she um, kind of connects the mainstream wing of the Democratic Party with the Bernie wing of the Democratic Party. But I had no idea that basically every week she'd be laying out policy proposals that I think will ultimately form the the platform of the Democratic Party, if not now, in the future, no matter what happens in this campaign. I mean, the, on monopoly, on um, on taxes, on um, holding corporate abusers accountable, uh, she has just been ferocious. You know, Donald Trump, along with racism and misogyny, he talked about immigration and he talked about trade. Those were the two policies that I think animated his campaign. And, and yes, they are uh, nationalist, and they do allow him to put forward this sort of white supremacist ideology. But they also happen to be places where there was a consensus in the political elite, right, mm-hmm. on trade, on immigration. So I think that there's a lesson there, and I think I've been very inspired by the way Elizabeth Warren has tried to speak to that problem without acceding even one inch on um, on uh, identity or any other questions while pursuing a a bold economic vision. Uh, Joe Biden is having a, a moment right now that is that I'm sure he's not enjoying very much, and he and it is kind of uh, goes along with this generational question that where Mayor Pete Buttigieg is is getting a lot of energy behind him because he does represent this generational shift. Yeah, and I think a lot of the things that that Biden is dealing with in terms of uh, you know women saying that they made him uncomfortable, if not in a sexual way. Um, is a is a generational thing too. Um, how how important do you think that is um, for this for this election that there be a generational contrast uh, with Trump? You know I, the way I think about it is, and we and we had a conversation about uh, these questions around you know about Joe Biden on pos- uh, around Joe Biden on positive America. Yeah, yeah. Um, but to the broader question about the generational uh, shift. To me, I don't. <laughs> I think we can have a change agent in a seventy-five-year-old body. I think we can have we can have a change agent in a thirty-seven-year-old body. Mm-hmm. To me, I don't care about the generation of the person we nominate. I care about how they sound, what they call for, what they call for, and if their politics reflect what is happening in the country. You can be. You can be a stodgy old person stuck in your ways. You can be a stodgy 37-year-old stuck in your ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can be a, look, my, my, my aunt Sadell and Uncle Lou, they retired decades ago. These are two people who made the most out of their retirement. They tried new <laughs> things. They learned how to use the computer. They're cool. Some people stuck in their ways. They never learned to use Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> what I want to know is that the candidate we pick understands um, the shifts we have in the country, mm-hmm. even if maybe they're not a part of it because they're older. And by the way, you can be a, there are, there are senators who have spent decades in the Senate who I would say Sherrod Brown, I don't know how long Sherrod Brown's in the Senate. He's been in the Senate a long time. To me, I hear Sherrod Brown talk about politics and I think it's somebody who uh, has a connection to the people he represents, uh, who doesn't sound like he's been on the floor of the Senate for 20 years. You can be in the Senate for two years and pick up those habits. So to me, I think age represents something, but it doesn't have to define something. So uh, I'm open to the full. And look, I'm, and look, as somebody who routinely attacks baby boomers on my co- podcast, I think I'm showing incredible <laughs> amounts of growth. Yeah, you are. <laughs> um, the, the Biden situation, um, you know, to me, recalls a little bit of what happened with um, Al Franken even though I think that some of the allegations against Al Franken were more severe than what people are saying about Biden. Um, and the, the first episode of the show was with Sarah Silverman, mm-hmm. who's friends with Al Franken. And she basically said that her friendship with him made it impossible for her to understand that he did something wrong in these in these cases. And she really defended him and said that she thought the allegations were bullshit and, and um, that he shouldn't have had to resign and all that. Um, I'm curious because... One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. 
That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hey, it's Paige Desorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. You, you know, worked in the White House with, you know, Obama and Biden. Does you, do, you, do you struggle with that same kind of thing where you, when you know the person and maybe you have the same feeling about Al Franken because I know he was a you know you've talked about how he's a, a political and comedy hero of yeah. yours as well um, how do you kind of deal with those um, those uh, personal uh, aspects of these of these stories I think it's hard you know I I think it's hard because First of all, when you know somebody, and I'm not, I don't feel, I don't know either of these people. You know, I, I, <laughs> I you know, to me, um, I think it probably makes it harder for people that feel very close to these mm-hmm. centers, especially people that love and admire Al Franken. I mean, I, I can take the Al Franken example. It was devastating to me when that was going on uh, because truly I looked up to Al Franken and like I loved his books. I loved the way he talked about politics. I really admired the way he transitioned from comedy into politics. Uh, I believed he was one of the most valuable Democratic voices in the Senate. It was heartbreaking for me uh, how that unfolded, not because (laughs) Al Franken was railroaded, uh, but because Al Franken put himself in a situation where he decided he had to resign. Mm -hmm. You know, I think there's a lot of people who have unfairly attacked Senator Gillibrand about this, saying, you know, uh, how could you do that to Al Franken? What did she do? She did it to Al Franken. No, she she looked at the facts as as we knew them at the time, as we still know them, and said, "I believe that this person should resign." Now, Al Franken had a choice to make. He could he could have fought, he could have waited, uh, uh, but he chose not to, and he chose not to in a way that kind of elided the allegations themselves. You know, uh, remember I remember I deny some. I re- I remember some differently. Uh, um, I apologize for the. You know, it was a it was a kind of confusing apology-like thing that happened with him. Mm-hmm. So uh, it was a, it was a, I go back and forth, not on the question of um, was it wrong for people to call on Al Franken to resign. I go back and forth on this, um, on this challenge we have of like, well, so how do we adjudicate these hard questions, right? Like what is the right thing to do in that circumstance? You know, by the time Al Franken uh, resigned. There were multiple allegations, including from, my, uh, you know, I'd have to go back and review the facts, but mm-hmm. but I believe a Democratic congressional staffer, um, which was enough, I think, to say to people, hold on, there's there's really is a, a lot here. Yeah. Um, I think one of the things we were grappling with, we still are grappling with, but that was at the very peak of when we were first starting to kind of reckon with this yeah. Me Too moment. I think the timing had a lot to do with how that all played out, for sure. Probably. Maybe. I don't know. Yeah. But um, what do you do when... Uh, you have (laughs) built up so much injustice in a culture, right? So much that it all starts starts pouring out. You know, there's part of the reason you can end up in a situation where all of a sudden you are learning about multiple allegations of misconduct. And this is, this runs the gamut from the, from the, from the serial predators all the way to people accused of sexual harassment, right? The more kind of quotidian mm-hmm. uh, uh, misconduct, right? That's that's still terrible, but doesn't rise to the level of someone like Harvey Weinstein. What do you do, right? When when this level of misconduct was allowed to build up because the rules just didn't apply to everybody fairly, that somebody could repeatedly abuse their position of power and not be held accountable to the point where now you're not talking about one allegation, you're talking about a dozen, you're talking about seven, you're talking about whatever number. And, you know, I think we're still reckoning with that. We're still reckoning with how you 
uh, make up for the mistakes and omissions and injustices of the past. And, and it's really hard. And I understand those uh, who um, see it differently on, on Franken. But, you know, I think um, the one thing that's important is that Democrats aren't like Republicans and we hold ourselves to a higher standard. Yeah, I mean, people always go back to the fact that Trump has been accused of doing much worse than either Al Franken or Biden. Um, and so people would say, you know, so why shouldn't Biden get to run against Trump? And and you know what? I, that is a rhetorical question that nobody wants to answer. Yeah. What exactly is your position? Is your position that Democrats don't care about misconduct? Is your position that as long as you agree with someone on policy, uh, it doesn't matter what they do? No, of course not. So what's your position exactly? Your position is you don't like how this ended. Neither yeah. do I. I was heartbroken by it. But I don't know how we get out of this uh, and uphold the principles we care about without recognizing that that means uh, it's going to come down on our side and probably worse than the other side because they don't give a shit. Yeah. They'll, yeah. they'll get, you know, Ronna Romney McDaniel at the RNC will throw money behind Roy Moore after it all comes out, right? I don't know. All I know is... I don't want to live. I don't want to live in a society where we're both living up to Ronna Romney McDaniel standards. I don't <laughs> want to. So uh, we shouldn't. Um, so another, uh, <laughs> you are bringing up just the what is this podcast? <laughs> what exactly are we doing here? Is it just the the most frustrating and awful topics? Uh, what we, else is on there? Um, what else you got? <laughs> do you want to talk about something else frustrating? I know sure. I have something Hit else me. frustrating. <laughs> yeah. that you, that you, what else you got? Uh, you wrote an open letter to Howard Schultz earlier this year. <laughs> yeah, I year. did. You bet. Oh, my God. <laughs> Jesus. What is, what is this hit list of yours? Yes, I did. Um, That's actually, that that to me is, requires a less nuance. What do you got? Um, what is it that frustrates you so much about Howard Schultz? <laughs> um, so I would urge everyone listening to read the open letter I wrote to Howard Schultz on Crooked.com because it does explain exactly where I'm coming from. But the larger question, why does it? So I make the argument for why Howard Schultz should run as a Democrat or not at all. But why does Howard Schultz bother me so, so much? Um, he has power. His money gives him power. We have created a culture and a society in which wealth has accru accrued to a few privileged hands, to the hands of people like Howard Schultz. Uh, to the hands of people like Mark Zuckerberg, to the hands of people like the Koch brothers. And money is power. You can buy things with it. You can skip steps that other people can't. You can get your kids into USC if you want. Uh, that, has, that power comes with responsibility, as Spider-Man would say. And, you know, he could do whatever he wants with his money. He can decide that he doesn't have to listen to anybody. He doesn't have to do the hard work. Look at Pete Buttigieg, right? How is Pete Buttigieg making a name for himself? He doesn't have, I mean, now he has millions of dollars because people donated to him. But when yeah. he started, he was just a gay vet mayor from South Bend, Indiana, who was really fucking smart and had something to say. And he said, you know what? I'm going to take a chance and I'm going to say it. I'm going to go door to door. I'm going to go to Iowa. I'm going to go to every town hall. I'm going to answer every question. And I'm going to see what people think when, I, when they hear what I have to say. And you know what? He's having a moment. He's able to reach people. Because he couldn't skip the Democratic primary by buying his way onto every state ballot. He couldn't, uh, he couldn't avoid the hard work of persuading people, for convincing people of his way of thinking, uh, because all he has to do is buy advertisement, buy, uh, buy consultants to help him make uh, uh, <laughs> dumb internet videos with jazz in the background. <laughs> he gets to skip all that stuff because of his wealth. He doesn't have to listen to any of us. And you know... Uh, uh, that really frustrates me. It frustrates me that somebody could interject themselves into our political process and decide, you know what, I'm not going to run as a Democrat because uh, uh, the Democrats aren't going to agree with what I have to say. So I'm going to run as an independent, even though the, the next person to be elected president is going to largely be elected, if they're not Donald Trump, by Democratic votes with some independents and a few Republicans, right? It mm -hmm. is almost certain that the next president will be elected by that group of people. And I don't care what anybody says. I don't care what the polls say. I have my own polls that I bought with my own money. I don't care what the, <laughs> what the best uh, political people say because I bought my own political people who are telling me it's a good idea for me to run. I don't care what anyone says. I don't have to care because I have the money to not care. And that really, really bothers me. It bothers me. And, you know, one of the reasons, as I said earlier, I'm so excited by what Elizabeth Warren is doing is because she's attacking the structural unfairnesses, the structural uh, 
inequities in our economy that not only means corporations have too much power over their workers, that not only mean corporations have too much power over individuals, it means that individuals can accrue so much wealth that they have more power over our political system than anyone ever intended. And you know what? Look at Mike Bloomberg, right? Mike Bloomberg, he has more money than Howard Schultz. If you if you add up the money that Howard Schultz has to the money Mike Bloomberg has, you end up with the amount of money Mike Bloomberg has. <laughs> Mike Bloomberg is so filthy rich. And he wants to be president. You can see it in those eyes. Yeah. He's got those eyes that say, I want to be president. <laughs> the shark eyes. Built a massive company. He could do what Schultz is doing. He could put himself on every ballot. He could skip the Democratic primary. But, but he is surrounded by people who he trusts and who he listened to, who didn't tell him yes, who said, you know what? Actually, you can't win as an independent. You should consider running as a Democrat or not at all. And if you're not going to run as a Democrat, you should use the money to help Democrats win. That's the best way to help the country. And you know what? He looked at that and he said, you're right. You're right, because I'm a better billionaire than Howard Schultz. I make Howard Schultz look like a piece of shit, because I'm Mike Bloomberg, the better billionaire. And Howard Schultz, too arrogant to get it. I could rant about this for a while. <laughs> what do you What do you make of uh, some at least one former uh, Obama uh, staffer working for Howard Schultz now? It seems a little incongruous to a lot of people. Uh, I think it's incongruous uh, to a lot of people, <laughs> and I think. Um, uh, those Democrats who think it's a good idea to help Howard Schultz um, need to be persuaded that what they're doing um, will hurt Democrats even if now at this point if Howard Schultz doesn't run. Because look what Howard Schultz is doing. He's traveling across the country, attacking Democrats, attacking Democratic positions, saying that being for Medicare for all is un-American. He put out, he put out, he said this, he said, Donald Trump uh, saying he's going to shut down the southern border is just another example of bipartisan dysfunction. What are you talking about? <laughs> what, are, what are you talking about, you coffee dunce? <laughs> Uh, one other candidate that I want to talk about before we move on from 2020 is uh, Beto, because I got to see the the documentary oh, cool. uh, running running with Beto at South by Southwest that uh, Crooked Media was involved in uh, producing. Um, what what is uh, what did that entail, um, and and what uh, what did that mean to to produce that that documentary? So, uh, basically, uh, uh, like two years ago. I lost all track of time, but uh, but long before anybody had ever heard of Beto O'Rourke, right before Beto O'Rourke was a, ha a household name, back when I was saying uh, Beto, because mm -hmm. I had no idea how to say it, um, uh, this director, David Modigliani, is very talented. He made a film called Crawford about George W. Bush. A lot of people have seen. Actually knows Tommy Vitor from childhood. He's like, I'm thinking about making a documentary about this long shot Senate bid against, uh, against uh, Ted Cruz. Uh, what do you guys think? We thought about it and we're just like, you know what? Let's let's get involved. It seems exciting and exciting not because we were so enamored of Beto O'Rourke, who again we had barely heard of, but because it was gonna be a story about a long shot campaign and about people getting involved in that campaign. You know, in that movie, it's not just about Beto. He follows a, a woman who cares about veterans issues because of how it impacted her family, um, a uh, young Latina who is uh, campaigning for Beto because she uh, cares about immigration. Um, so it was a story not just about, it wasn't a story about a presidential candidate. There's nobody even knew who he was. It was a story about this long shot campaign and people trying to get involved in the wake of Donald Trump winning. And, um, it just <laughs> it's one of those things where you got you we 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 said yes to something and then better work became better work and it's been very exciting but there've been people like oh you know it's uh uh you guys have some financial stake in, in better work <laughs> becoming president so first of all i don't know yeah. like it's a documentary i don't i don't know if you've i don't know if, if you've heard but it's not um it's documentary not a lot of people are like, oh, how'd you build this castle? I mean, I built it with documentary money. <laughs> but also we're donating any uh, any profits, if there are ever profits, which there probably won't be, to uh, vote.org. But but in part because we, we are going to be a place where all the candidates can come and talk. Yeah, uh, you don't want to be seen as kind of endorsing a, a no. candidate this this early on. No. Um, it does, The movie is really great, and it does kind of it, – it does work in a way as a long campaign ad for Beto O'Rourke, even though it shows a very complicated – 
You person. see all sides of the. Yeah. You all, it's a, it's. A, I really, which I like. I mean, that makes me more inclined to to you know support him because he seems like a human being. <laughs> yeah. Well, yes. I mean, that's that's the goal, right, of any documentary, right? So you see, get to see Beto as a human being behind the scenes. You get to see uh, how this long shot campaign unfolded and the people that helped do it. And it's a really great film, um, so people should check it out. Do you see uh, Do you see some Obama in him? I mean, there's obviously been some some comparisons in his style and his. Uh, um, the the way he's able to appeal to um, a wide swath of, of voters. Isn't there a little Obama in all of us? <laughs> oh, great answer. Thank you. <laughs> Coming up, is John Lovett a comedian? And what was it like writing jokes for the president of the United States? You asked what this podcast is, and it's... Um, it's <laughs> Can't wait to find out. Uh, it's... It, <laughs> Ironically, it's mostly about comedy, and that's not what we've been talking about uh, this, most of this time. But, mm-hmm. but I, I do think there's this. Uh, I've mostly interviewed comedians, and I, I think you, you have this interesting place where you are. Uh, I'm curious whether you at all consider yourself a, a comedian, because on Love It or Leave It, I feel like in especially over time, you've your um, intro monologues have gotten a little longer. They felt a little more like stand-up comedy. Um, do you? Do you feel like a, a comedian? Do I feel like a comedian? <laughs> you know, that's an interesting question. Um, I feel very lucky that I get to do this job where I talk about politics. I get to do it in a funny way. I get to be part of Pod Save America. I get to do this live show where I do do, you know, some version of stand up uh, once a week and do these road shows. Um, you know, it's funny when I was a speechwriter and then a screenwriter, I always had trouble saying I'm a writer. There's something about I'm a writer that like if you weren't sitting at a typewriter writing novels, mm. like I always felt like I was um, posing. And even now, like a- a- and I-, I aspired to be a comic at one point in my life and was doing open mics and, you know, was uh, was was uh, doing bringer shows in New York and getting friends to come to comedy clubs so that I could have a few minutes on stage uh, because it was something that I aspired to. And. I say even though a lot of what I get to do at Love It or Leave It is, you know, is comedic and I look like a comedian some of the time. And (laughs) there's something about saying I'm a comedian that I feel like in the same way that I didn't feel like I just don't feel like I get to say it. I don't I don't know why that may speak to more of um, my own uh, Jewish anxieties. I mean, you're still incredibly busy uh, with everything. So I I, but I wonder whether whether. Whether I'm, a, uh, I'm not a comedian, I'm just busy. Whether you have well, whether you have aspirations to do stand up in a more stand y way, you know, than than what you're doing on Love It or Leave It, or are you are you so consumed with with what you're doing that you don't really have time to to think about that? Yeah, I think that um, like I, I used to say, I had a friend uh, um, in D.C., and I remember when I started writing jokes. For Hillary, and then I started writing jokes for Obama. I remember telling him, you know, don't don't let me forget. You know, I know that I'm writing jokes, but maybe I'm funny enough to be a funny professional, but I'm not funny enough to be professionally funny. Mm-hmm. That was always sort of the thing I wanted to remind myself of. I was always insecure about that. I feel very lucky that I get to sit at this intersection between politics and comedy. That I get to do a show that, look, we'll have a conversation with Adam Schiff about Mueller. That is you know, very much comedy adjacent. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then we'll do a game that's purely funny. And we have uh, great writers uh, who help us uh, write, um, you know, segments that are you know purely comedic. Um, I feel very good that I get to do both. I have been very lucky in my career to never find myself easily fitting into a category. And I guess I get to keep doing that um, because of how lucky I've been so far. Mm-hmm. So before we end, uh, something I wanted to do is kind of go th- going back to the White House Correspondents' Dinner and your experience there is mm-hmm. go through, I believe you were, you, you were there, you did four, four years of that, is that is I worked that right? on all, I would say I worked on, I worked on. Even, even what, after you left yeah, the White I House. Yeah, I kept working on them. So I worked on virtually all of them, but uh, I was there for the first, I was there in the building for the first couple. Um, so I wanted to go through the, the uh, those years as comedians and, and, and see what, what you remember from that time, if there's any uh, mm-hmm. funny stories or memories that kind of pop up. Okay. Um, so the first one uh, was with Wanda Sykes, um, mm-hmm. which I guess was in 2009. So what do you remember from that first, from that first one? So 
that I barely remember Wanda Sykes because that was my first year working for President Obama and my first year working on jokes. So I was just terrified. I just was terrified. And I feel like after Obama was done, I was so relieved that I don't think I could hear things clearly. I remember her being really good and I love Wanda Sykes, uh, but I don't really remember her speech because I was just so relieved that Obama's went well because I was like, I never, I never read a White House correspondence speech before. You know, I never worked on one before. And so it was just very exciting. So that is all that I retain <laughs> from 2009. I don't actually believe I had an official ticket. I think I just had to stand in the back. Oh, wow. Uh, so the next year was uh, Jay Leno was the comic, which is kind of funny to, <laughs> to think about that Jay Leno followed Wanda Sykes. Uh, but uh, so you were, you'd been there a little bit longer that year. So, I mean, what, what do you remember, um, not just about him, but about uh, about that that year i remember so that's 2010 yeah when is the when is big effing deal i think that's the next year big effing deal with the believe mm. it might have been that year um i remember jay leno doing material that felt like it was from the tonight show including <laughs> with like video and stuff yeah and uh remember thinking that uh i was very much in a pro conan mindset at the time that's all i really remember mm -hmm. i don't really remember that yeah much. that was right around that time yeah right? yeah <laughs> and then i guess conan came in and did it did it later after you'd left the white house but, oh yeah uh, yeah but um but that was leno's year so the following year 2011 obviously a very uh consequential this one <laughs> i remember very well sure. uh, so it was seth myers and uh Donald Trump was in the audience, mm -hmm. and both Seth and uh, Obama made some some very funny jokes about him. Yeah. Um, so what so what what comes to mind when you when you think about that year? Obviously, you've been asked about this one a lot more. Yeah. So I mean, a couple things. One, I remember that we had written most of the White House correspondence in our speech before. That was the week that the long form form birth certificate was released. Mm -hmm. So we had written most of the speech, and then two or three days before the actual event. Um, I remember Favreau and I were talking about there was some kind of mysterious press thing that was going to happen. And I remember us joking, it's going to be the birth certificate because it's going to ruin our jokes. Like mm. the birth certificate is going to happen right now. And then sure enough, it was the birth certificate. And we had to rewrite a ton of stuff because a lot of it was geared about the fact that, you know, uh, here was Donald Trump in the audience demanding a birth certificate, you know, and then all of a sudden now we have it. So we had to redo that. Um, that was when we had uh, the song I'm a Real American play over the video, <laughs> over the image of the birth certificate. That's the year we had uh, uh, <laughs> President Obama show his long form birth video, which was just Simba from The Lion King being <laughs> yeah, born. I love that one. Uh, that was also, I, you know, Judd Apatow, who, would I, who had, I had met at the previous year, actually. Mm -hmm. I could have told this during the 2009 yeah. or 10 version. Um, I was still so nervous about working in the White House that I was like, I was about to go in to see the president to work on jokes with, uh, I think it must have been, it was Favreau and it was Axelrod. We're about to go in. And uh, Judd Apatow was on a tour of the White House at that time. Mm -hmm. And he said, oh, well, I'm here to help with jokes if you want. <laughs> and of course, like, I, I think that's so cool. Like Judd yeah. Apatow wants to help us write jokes. And I, I was so nervous. I was like, well, what am I supposed to do? Do I, I can't. Do I tell, who do I tell? I don't know how to help. I don't know. Does he, should he meet the president? What's going to, what do I do? Mm -hmm. I was so panicked that I just said, okay, thank you. And I turned around and walked <laughs> away. And I, and he told the story later that he felt like I blocked him from meeting President yeah. Obama. Anyway, <laughs> the next year I was like, you know what? I'm going to, I'm going to call him and he's going to help me. Yeah, I'm going to make up to him. Uh, he's going to, I'm going to ask for his help, even though I snubbed him. Mm -hmm. uh, but we got on the phone and that is where a lot of those Donald Trump jokes came from. Uh, uh, Judd um, sort of riffing on, on, the apprentice and um and sort of a lot of good stuff came out of that conversation um but that is where the the, the, the a lot of the, the donald trump stuff came from it was actually much longer and it was crazy and i remember <laughs> we weren't sure if it was going to work and then uh president obama started delivering it and it worked we you know we cut it down and we we uh we um made that sort of run about uh how qualified donald trump was to be president we made jokes about the birth certificate all of it and um we thought to ourselves well there we've done it We'll never hear from Donald Trump again. <laughs> that was also the weekend of the Bin Laden raid. Yeah. So it was a consequential moment. Um, and uh, then Seth got up and just just finished him. So yeah. uh, uh, I, I remember, I mean, <laughs> the, the main image I have from that 
that night is is the shots of Trump in from the, the audience. From the side, from the behind. You don't know the just, front shot. Yeah, yeah, just that profile, not smiling, just looks like he's furious. And I and I, I wonder whether he knew he was on camera. But you, it's like most people in that situation would try to laugh. <laughs> well, most people aren't the worst person <laughs> our pop culture has produced in 100 years. So he's not that. <laughs> Uh, and then I think this was your last year actually working in the White House was uh, 2012 with uh, Jimmy Kimmel. So I think I was probably gone by then already, oh, really? but I did remember working on it. Um, I will say now that we even sit here talking about it, 2011 <laughs> has so obliterated yeah. all my other memories of uh, those years. I, I'd have to go back and see the speech. Mm -hmm. There was just a run of really good. You know, Kimmel did great. Um Seth Meyers did great. Wanda Sykes did great. Like there was just a run of great comics, and and I you know I think President Obama did a great job as well. So there's just like a run of great dinners. Yeah, I've, I've always uh, been curious about the decision to have the comic follow Obama because I think with any other president it would make sense because they're just like obviously the professional comedian Ugh. should go second. But Obama was so good at telling jokes that it almost so I felt bad for the comedian who it had to follow. Him. Was brutal. Brutal, brutal, brutal. We had, I was very proud of that too. I was proud to get to work on those speeches because it was awesome that just like, man, President Obama, who has, who is too good looking and charming to be as funny as he is, it's very frustrating, right? He should yeah. be worse at it, uh, was very good at delivering jokes. All kidding aside, obviously we all know about your credentials and breadth of experience. Um, <laughs> For example, uh, no, seriously, just recently, in an episode of Celebrity Apprentice, at the steakhouse, the men's cooking team uh, did not impress the judges from Omaha Steaks. And there was a lot of blame to go around, but you, Mr. Trump, recognized that the real problem was a lack of leadership. And so ultimately, you didn't blame Little John or Meatloaf. You fired Gary Busey. <laughs> and these are the kind of decisions that would keep me up at night. I just, I remember that this idea of like having to follow him was so hard and made it such a <laughs> um, losing proposition. I, I think Seth Meyers had, to me, the best technique was he just, he came with a binder full of jokes and he just race through those jokes just joke 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 just to keep the audience laughing keep mm -hmm. them moving uh which was i think a great technique uh to follow uh president obama with do you remember any uh jokes that you wrote that that didn't make it to on into into obama's uh, speeches for any reason that you, know, you can share with us now <laughs> i i can't not because i'm being coy i don't remember um in part because you know i would write jokes and then we'd have all this huge assembly of jokes and we kind of cobble the speech together mm -hmm. and rewrite and all the rest. So I have trouble remembering who wrote what anyway, and I wouldn't want to take credit to begin with. And then the jokes that don't make, what jokes made it, what jokes yeah. don't make it. I, I don't, I don't really remember. Um, though, uh, there was our, you know, John and I, uh, Favreau would always joke that sort of like I tended, I tended to write meaner jokes mm -hmm. and David Axelrod tended to write, more avuncular jokes and john has a really great ability john would write great jokes but also have a really good ability to kind of find the best version of a joke as well but i think a lot of times the best balance would be in tons of other material great material that would come in from all kinds of writers all other like you know professionals other writers at the white house a lot of people would contribute but i think we always did the best when we struck a balance between the meaner stuff uh and the more avuncular stuff that could come from axelrod who was always also a great joke writer um but uh john's joke was always that to me the ideal white house correspondence dinner joke is just the president knocking the podium over and just saying fuck you <laughs> <laughs> that's great all right well uh john thank you so much for uh, for doing this today and uh, matt i feel like yeah roughly once a year you find a different way for me to yell at you <laughs> about various issues for about an hour and sometimes you write it up write it down sometimes it gets recorded it's just a tradition that we have well i'm really glad that now everyone's going to get to hear it sure um, and uh and <laughs> and hopefully we can do it again uh sometimes oh soon. we didn't record it oh, oh damn all right thanks all matt right. thank you thank you to john lovett for being my guest on today's show check him out every week on pod save america and love it or leave it 
and visit crooked.com slash events to buy tickets to his upcoming live shows in Houston, Dallas, Austin, Minneapolis, and a lot more cities all across the country. If you enjoy this show, please tell your friends and rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. You can find me on Twitter at Matt Wilstein and at thedailybeast.com. The Last Laugh is distributed by Himalaya Media for The Daily Beast. It is produced by Jason Smith for Starburns Audio and Scott Porch for Himalaya Media. Special thanks to Crooked Media for letting us record at their studio and to Kyle Seglin for engineering this episode. Our music is by Claude, who you can find on Instagram at claude.mp3. You can find this show every week on Apple Podcasts, the Himalaya app, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And you can find show notes and highlights from each episode on thedailybeast.com. See you next week. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.